0: Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 123. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that, before I read that for us, let's pray together. Father, we come to you to uh, to hear your voice, to hear from you, to hear uh, of your love for us in the gospel, to hear of your guidance for our lives. We come to see Jesus in all of his glory. Uh, We come to be transformed in his image. And Father, we know know that you do all of these things through your word. And so we pray, Father, that you would meet with us now, uh, that you would give me uh, the words that need to be said, that you would uh, soften our hearts and open our ears and enlighten our minds, that we would be able to receive and understand The message you have for us in your scriptures. And uh, we pray that you would uh, do this by your Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 123 A Song of Ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had enough, more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Well, we all want to feel safe. And as, as Todd just mentioned, as we watch the news, oftentimes that incites in us anxiety and fear. It's not always easy to feel safe when you feel small. And, but often we do feel small, uh, vulnerable, uh, maybe even insignificant. And our default then is either to puff out our chests... To feel a little bit bigger, or to run and hide and maybe shrink ourselves even more and hope that we don't get noticed. This happens every day, by the way, not just in the big things, and the big sort of scary things that we hear on the news, but uh, when we face conversations that make us feel uncomfortable, for example. We might literally keep away from people, or we might simply... Capitulate to them, we might get bristly, those are all types of avoidance. Um, or we might go on the offensive and attack and argue and deride and do whatever we can to win the argument. You know, I uh, do a little bit of uh, design just for fun, a little bit of graphic design, and I'm really, I'm kind of uncomfortable talking about it because I'm so insecure about uh, my own artwork. And uh, when people talk to me about it, if they ask, I tend to get a little bristly. Unintentionally, but it's fear, it's anxiety, Uh, it's wanting to avoid the conversation. How do you respond when you're threatened? How do you respond when people disagree with you? How do you respond when they belittle or look down on you? Is your tendency to fight or to flee? To puff out your chest or to run and hide? Well, our psalm this morning is written by someone who had had enough of being belittled and mocked and put down. But he didn't puff out his chest and he didn't run and hide. He lifted up his eyes. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Lifting your eyes to the Lord. Uh, there are a few things uh, that we need to know about this psalm uh, and about the psalms in general before we start. The first is that the psalms uh, are about life. The psalms are about real life, where we live. They give us words to sing, as it were, about the nitty-gritty of our day-to-day. Uh, this psalm, along with many others, tells us that in the title. It says, uh, a song of a sense. So this psalm is a song gives us a melody to the joys and sorrows of life. This psalm in particular is really a a soundtrack for suffering sojourners. This series of psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, is titled uh, Songs of Ascent, a Song of Ascent. And uh, the, the most likely reason for this collection is that they were psalms that the pilgrims would sing as they made their way to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the three yearly feasts. And so they are pilgrim psalms, psalms for sojourners. They are psalms for people headed toward God's presence, but not there yet. They have a hope, but it's not yet fulfilled. And so they're psalms for us, God's people today, as we live as aliens and strangers in this world, awaiting the day, uh, not when we will get to God's temple, per se, but when the dwelling place of God will be with us. When Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised and God will dwell in our midst forever and ever. The day when we get to the New Jerusalem because the New Jerusalem has come down to us. So the Christian life is a journey to a, a heavenly city where God will dwell in our midst. But not just a journey upward to heaven, but a journey forward to the consummation when heaven and earth will become one. And so that's the journey that we're on. That's the pilgrimage And notice these sojourners are suffering. Uh, We'll come to verses 3 and 4 in a minute, but notice there the the psalmist cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy because of the contempt and the scorn that he faces day after day. And for now, just just note, right, his, his pilgrimage is not easy. This is a soundtrack for suffering sojourners, those who feel belittled or mocked or scorned or rejected, or alone. The last thing that we need to add before we look at the psalm itself is you are not the first or the primary singer of this psalm. We ought to adopt this psalm like all the psalms, uh, to sing it with heart and voice. But know that you're not the first nor the primary singer of this psalm. I and mean, God's people have been suffering for thousands of years. Sometimes when we suffer, we, uh, our temptation is to think, I'm, I'm in this alone. Nobody understands what I'm going through. My suffering is unique. My struggles are, are different. And there's a sense in which that's true, of course, because we all experience our own struggles, our own trials. But there is a more profound sense in which what we all experience is what is common to man. We experience the sufferings of this age. And so this psalm, as it has been sung throughout the ages, stands as a witness to a whole community of suffering sojourners. So you're not the first singer of this psalm, but neither are you the primary one. Including today, I think we've looked at about 20 psalms in this series, and I haven't pointed this out every time But I hope it's been evident every time that the Psalms are all about Jesus. One of the ways that this is true is that he is the primary singer of the Psalms. When the eternal Son of God took on human skin and became a man, he entered into our condition and he knew our sorrows. And the result was he took up the songs of Israel for himself And that is true of everything that we will see here in this psalm. He was mocked and scorned and rejected and abused. Of course, culminating in the cross. He lifted his eyes to the Father saying, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He waited for mercy three days in the grave. And of course, what this psalm doesn't say, but only hopes for, the Father did have mercy on him. Jesus was exalted. He is actually now the one enthroned in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, the one to whom we must look for mercy. So what is the song, what is this song that we sing as suffering sojourners? What are the themes of this psalm? Well, there are three here in this short psalm, and each is a different aspect of how we respond to our suffering as sojourners. And if you want to follow along, you can find the outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, There are three points there. Lift your eyes to the Lord, wait on His timing, and cry out for mercy. First, lift your eyes to the Lord. Where do your eyes turn when you find yourself in trouble? Our eyes tend to turn one of two places. We either look at our situation... We play it over and over in our heads, eyes wide with horror. Our vision becomes consumed with kind of the the, the bigness of our problems. And if our eyes were movie cameras, right, the shot would be filled with exploding vehicles and larger-than-life enemies. The only ending we can imagine is is that to Avengers Infinity War. If you haven't seen it, you'll have to go watch it and figure out what that means. Um, So, so... We zoom in on the situation and the horror of the situation, or we pan around the scene and look for a hero. Who can save this damsel in distress? Of course, we tend to take matters into our own hands, right, uh, in, in modern sentiment, right, where the damsel can save herself just fine, thank you, uh, and, and we, we seek to save ourselves from our troubles and our trials. What does that look like? Well, when others uh, belittle us, whether the the belittling of Christians in culture, or simply being looked down on, uh, looked down on by a coworker or a sibling, what do we do? Well, maybe we seek to tear the other person down, or we seek to prove them wrong by building ourselves up. Especially when others make me feel small, right? Our temptation is to exalt ourselves. I don't want to feel small, and so I take matters into my own hands. Or we try to take back power. Or we try to prove that Christianity is something worth respecting in the social world, an act that tends to reduce Christianity to the concerns of the social world. But when I take matters into my own hands, however I might do it, I become the Lord of my destiny. Suddenly, my life is in my hands. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure I want my life in my hands. I don't trust myself. I, I know my weaknesses. I know my sins. I know my enemy. And so rather than looking at my problems or rather than looking at myself, where else can we look? Right? If, if not to the bigness of our Circumstances, if not to the inflated bigness of our own egos and our resources, what do we have left? Well, we look to the bigness of our God. But that means rather than trying to control as lords, we seek to submit as servants. Look at verses 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. And note a couple things about the psalmist's posture. Right, First, to, to, to you I lift up my eyes. The psalmist is not looking down on a subordinate. He's not looking over at an equal. The psalmist looks up to a superior And that is emphasized in a a number of ways, even in these short verses. I mean, first, the phrase itself, lift up my eyes. Uh, But but second, to whom does the psalmist look? Verse 1 says, to you who are enthroned in the heavens. And the point of God's enthronement in in the heavens is not that he is distant, but that he has all authority. He's not enthroned in Springfield, He's not enthroned in Washington or London or Tehran or Beijing. He is enthroned in the heavens. We saw this a few weeks ago in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God is king, but not of some local province. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And third, just note the similes in verse 2. As the eyes of servants... Look to the hand of their master as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. All right, the psalmist compares himself to a servant, to a maidservant, and God to a master or a mistress. And God is in the superior position. We are the inferior. We, the servants, lift our eyes to God, our Lord. And so the psalmist looks up. But note that the second thing about the psalmist's posture, what, what do eyes do They look. On the one hand, eyes don't do anything. Eyes are receptive. On a basic level, they receive information. But here they are looking for something to be done. Some have puzzled over just what the imagery in verse 2 means. Uh, servants look to their master's hand for what? What? And some suggestions that people have given have been, well, in servitude for orders, waiting for the master to sort of lift the hand and and give the command, or in fear not to be struck because the servant is is waiting for the master just to sort of give him a backhand or something like that. But the psalmist actually tells us. In fact, it's the climax of the first two verses. You know, Hebrew poetry, uh, like most poetry, has certain forms and uh, uh, when many of us were young, we learned that, you know, grade school level English poetry rhymes, right? Simple poetry like roses are red and violets are blue, right? It has to rhyme. Hebrew, tro- H- Hebrew poetry, though, has another basic form, which is parallelism. Uh, two lines are put side by side. Typically, the second adds something to the first. So uh, in verse one, to you, I lift up my eyes. Line one. O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens, line two. The second line fleshes out the first. It adds something. It, it, it takes us one step further. Uh, verse two, of course, is interesting because it has two lines and then two more that parallel the first two and then two more that parallel the first four. And so uh, verse two says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord our God. Those are actually the first six lines of verse 2. And that's complete as it stands, right? Six lines, each uh, three sets of two parallel lines. But then comes what is really a seventh climactic line, till he has mercy upon us. The psalmist lifts his eyes to the one enthroned in the heavens, his master, the Lord our God. He lifts his eyes for mercy. That is favor, grace. And, and here's the question that I think is kind of fascinating here. How does the relationship between master and servant lead to the expectation of grace? You know, our understanding of master, uh, the master-servant relationship is skewed by the corruption of this age. We think of masters as always harsh and servants as always chafing under authority. And this is often the way things are, as they have been distorted by sin. But authority was originally given for the good of the one under authority. Human authority is always stewardship. It's to care for something or someone on behalf of another And certainly in the servant-master relationship, there were certain contractual obligations on the servant. That's true. But what we miss is that there were also certain obligations on the master as well. The servant is under the protection of the master. And this is always meant to be true. The one who has authority has an obligation to exercise that for the good of those under authority. So parents exercise authority for the good of their children. Politicians are meant to exercise authority for the good of citizens. Even the Son of Man, the anointed King of Israel, came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He had authority and He used it for the good of those under that authority. The one under authority should always be able to look to the one in authority for protection and justice and help Hence here, mercy, grace. Now our problem is that we don't want to be under authority, we want to be in it. We don't want to be servants, we want to be lords. But every lord is ultimately his own protector. And if you chafe at the idea of being a servant of God, that's fine, but it also means you're on your own. You're on your own in this life, and you have no one to appeal to. You're on your own at the judgment seat of God. You have no master to come to your defense. Every Lord is his own protector, but the servants of the Lord are safe. We don't like being servants and having masters, but Scripture teaches everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself, like a servant, will be exalted. And so how do we look to God, then, for mercy How do we look to him for protection and care? Well, it it is true that we look to uh, other people in authority, right? Uh, You you look to the the civil civil, uh, governors or other superiors to bring justice. Paul certainly did that. You read through the book of Acts. He appealed to the civil magistrate when appropriate. And you can appeal to parents and teachers and managers and elected officials for justice and help. But who is the one who has all authority? It's not them. We see in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. To whom has God given the kingdom of men? He has set over it the lowliest of men, our Lord Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But God highly exalted him, Paul says, and gave him uh, authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. The name that is above every name, as Paul says in Philippians. So lift your eyes to the Lord till he has mercy upon you. That brings us to our second point, though, which is wait on his timing. And these next two points can be made more quickly now that we've kind of set the context of lifting our eyes to heaven. When we find ourselves in trouble, right, when it, when it doesn't work to puff out our chests or turn tail and run, our tendency is just to despair, to give up. How long must I wait? How long must I endure? Verse 3 says, we've had more than enough of contempt. Do you ever feel like that, right? I've had enough of this. I can't take anymore. I'm going to break. Maybe you're in a, a troubled marriage and your spouse is not all that you hoped, and you argue and you fight. Well, if there is abuse, obviously, this is one of those cases where you appeal to a higher authority immediately. But let's say there's no abuse, just division and discontent. How long you wonder, must I endure? Or maybe you don't like your job. It's just drudgery day after day after day. How long? Or maybe other school kids make fun of you. Or maybe you've been diagnosed with one sickness after another. And the moment you start to feel well, something else strikes. Or maybe you're just growing old. And you feel your age. You've seen friends pass on and you literally ache from the moment you plant your foot on the floor in the morning. And you emotionally ache to be done with all the pain. And you think, I've had my fill. How long? What's the answer of the psalm? How long? Verse 2 says, till he has mercy upon us. See, Jesus certainly knew pain. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He underwent every kind of trial that we do and more. And then he was crucified, and there on the cross he looked to the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, till you have mercy upon me. But then Jesus died. And to every spectator, believing and unbelieving in that moment, it looked as if the Master abandoned his servant. They were looking at their circumstances with the eyes of the flesh, and not looking to God with the eyes of faith. But that's what we often feel, right? As if God has abandoned us. How long, right? Uh, Have you turned your back on us? Have you given up on us? But then comes the third day. No matter how bad your life gets, whether you feel like you are being crucified or you feel like you are lying dead in the cold stone tomb, if you are united to Christ by faith, you await the third day or... More specifically, you await the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And so we wait on God's timing in our present circumstances. God, how long must I endure this? And we wait on God's timing for the end of all things. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Either way, God's timing is perfect. Moses wrote, God's work is perfect for all His ways are justice A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. His work is perfect. His ways are just. And that includes His timing. Keep looking till mercy comes in fullness. And you might think, but I can't take any more. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God will not let you endure beyond your ability. The word uh, trial and temptation are, are the same word in much of the New Testament. So First Corinthians ten thirteen, Paul says there, No temptation or no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, tried, beyond your ability, but with the temptation, the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now I realize those words are more about temptation than trials. But they apply, right? God will not let you be tried beyond your ability. That doesn't mean your ability as you rely on your own strength. It means your ability as you walk through trials in dependence upon his grace. God will be with you in the midst of that. He will not let you be tried beyond your ability or beyond his grace to uphold you. So as you struggle and suffer as sojourners, lift your eyes to the Lord and wait on His timing, knowing that His timing is perfect and the resurrection is on its way. Mercy will come. Lift your eyes, wait on His timing, and cry out for mercy. Final point, when tempted... When tempted to take matters into our own hands, God calls us to lift our eyes to Him. When tempted to despair and give up, God calls us to wait on His timing. But then the temptation comes to settle, to just passively accept what is. Call it apathy, call it stoicism, call it what you will, right? There is a path in life that just sucks it up and moves on. This is not waiting This is just a different kind of giving up. The psalmist had had his fill, verses 3 and 4. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The the psalmist actually has two problems here, Uh, not just one, but two. There are those who despise and mock and belittle and look down on and treat him as insignificant, but they look down on him for a reason. Those who look are those who are at ease, those who are safe and secure, the psalmist says, and the, and the proud, right, meaning uh, those who are objectively exalted above the squalor of everyday life. See, they are in a position to look down because they're on the top, which means the psalmist is on the bottom. Now for us, this trouble may take many different forms. It may be physical, as we heard about in our prayer earlier. There may be real enemies out to do us harm. It may be religious. There may be people who seek to to, uh, undermine our faith and show us that we're wrong. It's always spiritual. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour In the big picture, it may be uh, those who reject the Christian faith slowly gain, uh, as it has happened in our society, positions of power and authority and despise and belittle and mock Christians. What do we do? How do we respond? Look and wait and cry out. Uh, This may be in the mundane, right? Your boss, your siblings, uh, the the kids at school, the wealthy neighbor across the street, the the haughty co-worker, the arrogant uh, straight-A student, Anyone in a lofty position, whether socially or economically or academically, what do you do when one looks down on you and despises you and belittles you? What do you do when you find yourself on the bottom, rejected and struggling? Well, sometimes we say, suck it up, quit your whining, just move on. What does the psalmist do? He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. He cries out. And this whole psalm is an example and therefore an exhortation to cry out to God in your distress. Whatever that might be, cry out for something better. Don't settle for the suffering of this present age. Don't numb your souls to the pain. Faith is not apathy. Perseverance is not apathy. Waiting on the Lord is not apathy. It is longing until your soul cries out in agony. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Again, we think of Jesus. He came as one despised and rejected. He had his fill of contempt and scorn, but he lifted his eyes to the Father till he had mercy. And now the Father has exalted him to the highest place. Jesus certainly entrusted himself to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But what strikes me, however, is is Jesus' cry for mercy, his cry for mercy from the cross. It strikes me because he didn't ask for mercy for himself, but for his scorners, for the proud and the contemptuous. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, this psalm is an encouragement to the despised, but it's also a subtle warning to the mockers. God is listening to the prayers of His people. He will despise those who despise and mock those who mock. But many of us don't find ourselves on the bottom of social ladders, right? We're the ones who are at ease relatively. We're, We're the ones in high positions. And so are we the mockers, It's easy to mock when you are at ease and life seems good. It's easy to say, well, they're getting theirs. They deserve what's happening to them. But here is the call to the mocker. Repent. Repent knowing that that God holds out forgiveness to to all who are willing to humble themselves and turn to Him through Christ. Humble yourself and God will exalt you at the proper time. But here's the challenge to the humble. Humble. If mocked and belittled, looked down on and despised, can you forgive? Jesus has set you an example. Father, forgive them. Paul calls us to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Can you forgive in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering and your trials? Can you not hold it against another but love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you to bless and not curse? Of course, we can do this now only because we know that Jesus is coming. That He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but that's not the end of His work. He will return. He will come back and He will right all wrongs. He is enthroned in the heavens and He will put all things right. He will come and have mercy upon us. This will not last forever. You see, it's not our job then to seek revenge in the present we can forgive and bless and do good even as we look and wait and cry out, leaving judgment in our Savior's hands. Of course, the day of judgment is coming, but today is the day of salvation. Humble yourselves now in the present time that God might exalt you then in the fullness of the age to come when He returns and makes all things new. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see what you have done, are doing, and will do. And that we would be able to endure our troubles and trials in the present age even as we wait on you to put things right, whether now or at the return of your Son, Jesus. Help us to long for that day, to look for that day, to wait for that day, and to know on that day you will put all things right. Therefore, we have nothing to fear even in this moment because you, our Lord, are watching over and caring for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.